0: You are listening to a NEARS.org podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Cowen, where their success happens when they help you outperform. Visit them at cowen.com. That's C-O-W-E-N.com. Registration is open for our Fall 2022 Conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, happening September 20th to the 22nd. Come early, stay late. We have special room blocks aside just for you. For all things NEARS, visit us at nears.org. Tony and Jason, welcome to the NEARS No Bummer Summer Podcast. And it's great to have both of you here. You know, I want to start this off. I want to set the mood for everybody. So what, Tony, let's start with you. What is your ideal summer day? Where are you at and what are you listening to and what are you drinking?
1: Wow, that's, that's a tough one because there's so many great ways to spend a summer day. Uh, I suppose, if, since this is all theory, I would have a radio with Vin Scully and the Dodger game in the background and a harpoon IPA in my hand, and, uh, uh, either the, uh, several newspapers at my feet in an Adirondack chair overlooking the water or at least a good book. Uh, now, the reason that's fantasy is, of course, I never lived in L.A., so I almost never got to hear Vin Scully on the radio. But let's just say that I, I could put Vin Scully in the radio on Cape Cod and, and a harpoon IPA. There I am. Hey, Jason? i'm I'm just still
2: in shock i didn't know guys from harvard could read a book i'm impressed um so my my best day uh, in the summer first of all uh despite being uh, half italian i do not tan well so i am under an umbrella uh in a uh, portion of the cape may beach uh it's about a call it a 90 degree day with no humidity uh and uh, i have uh, a nice let's say a nice pilsner uh on ice cold and i am listening to
0: uh iron maiden okay so as we get into this iron maiden yeah
1: good lord one of the
0: one of the best live
2: metal bands
1: yes one of the best live metal bands yes i listen to heavy metal live and metal you wouldn't be able to say that sentence
0: i I listen to heavy metal
1: john knows it well
0: so well now we set the mood you're both drinking
1: (laughs) <laughs> and that's probably
0: what everybody else needs to be able to listen to. Probably most of what's going to come out of everybody's mouth because we're halfway through the year. A lot of things haven't changed yet. And there's been a lot of static throughout the industry of what's going on and what may be changing. So, Tony, if you want to start us out on the rail side, give us a quick overview of what's going on, what to look out for, and
1: what, you know, just some predictions you have going forward through the last half of the year. Well, I think you said a a key phrase there. A lot of things haven't changed. Uh, At the beginning of the year, the railroads expected, and we had some reason to believe, that they would be showing improvements in the second half that would regenerate their, uh, you know, if not their growth, their share recovery story as they moved um, trainee employees into revenue service employees, uh, thereby, you know, uh, reducing uh, useless costs, you know, uh, non-revenue costs, and increasing the business and picking back up share as their service improved. Uh, that You know, we can't say that won't happen. And the railroads continue to point to moving training classes into the field. But there's very little sign so far that it is happening. The trend lines haven't really changed. So that's a little disappointing. The most important thing that they the railroads have a tactical, you know, emergency, not a, a strategic long term one, I think. But tactically, they need to restore service and their service issues or throughout the supply chain, as I'm sure Jason will be about to tell us, but, but the railroads that are unique in having several bodies of government agency that look exclusively at them, the House Railroad Subcommittee, and more importantly, the STB. And so they've been in the headlines in all the wrong ways. I think most of the real threat of the STB is sort of behind us now in the short to intermediate term. But the railroads have to fix this service issue and thereby begin to recover some of the traffic that artificially has left them to go to the highway. I'm not talking intermodal, although, of course, that counts too. But even in the carload space where where the, their lack of fluidity has meant that uh, they wash air and paper and steel in other areas. So, so that is the short-term be-all and end-all project, beyond which, assuming they get to this in the second half, and that doesn't correspond with the... Uh, you know, the the world coming to an end with higher interest rates, which I don't believe it will, uh, then we could start talking about strategic issues for the railroads. But right now, we're in a tactical game.
0: Okay, Jason, let's turn it over to you. Let's talk about the other modes of freight.
2: Well, you know, look, as as we sit here today, everyone knows that uh, uh, I work in the markets, and it is another lovely day s and is down about two and a half percent today, that leaves it down over 23% for the year, just a blood red screen, whether you're looking at transports or quite frankly anything else. Um, the interesting thing is when you when you talk to the companies throughout the supply chain, no one is actually feeling like the markets are looking, and that's because the markets look forward. Uh, and so everyone's worried about what's coming, not what is already here right now. Uh, the railroads, you know, as Tony mentioned, you know, uh, don't exactly have the best service right now. We were hopeful that it would be better than it is now. Uh, I don't think it's gotten any worse. Um, you know you're you're running you know most of the railroads and, and their incoming classes, you know they're they're netting uh, guys every uh, and gals every month uh, to put into the field and the service. That's the good news. Again, the bad news is we just haven't seen it. I think the worrisome factor uh, from um, an analyst perspective for me is the fact that, you know, Tony mentioned business that they lost and I'll say business that they could have won uh, because, you know, right now uh, everybody wants to save money and the easiest way to do is take it off the highway and, and put it onto a rail car and, and the railroads just aren't offering that opportunity up to shippers right now, that's an issue. Uh, so when you look at the broader supply chain, you look at the massive problems that we've had in the ports last year. You know that's improved. There was a lot of fears uh, that the shutdown uh, in China uh, from the zero COVID policy, you know, would result into this big pop of freight back into the marketplace, and then we'd be all, you know, screwed up again. I don't think that's really going to happen. Namely, because when you look at what's been flowing in from China, uh, has there been a lower flow? Yes, um, but it, it feels like there's you know, 70 to 80% of that freight was moving anyway, it was just moving through other ports like Ningbo or something like that. Um, you know, it's it's in the numbers too, when you look at the, the freight flows into it. So I don't, I think we're going to be able to escape that. Um, a lot of people still, uh, I think have some headcount issues uh, right now, so that's still tying up freight, you know, at the end uh, market. So the shippers themselves uh, are part of this equation because it's a complete supply chain, as we all know. Uh, And we're also still having problems getting equipment, Um, you know, trucking companies are hoping to complete their 21 orders uh, here late summer of 22 uh, for new equipment, which also is needed to keep a supply chain running. Um, You know, my fear right now, like anything else, I mentioned the markets forward looking as am I, is what's going to happen ultimately to the consumer uh, with the, you know, these higher inflation costs. And I think what is the beginning uh, of what we're going to see a lot of layoffs coming in the market.
0: Great, now I've opened this up to questions and we got a lot of questions concerning ESG. And obviously you pretty much can't open up a trade journal or business journal and not hear about the rumblings going on with, you know, is it time to eliminate the E out of it? As the standards seem to be all over the place. I see a few companies have gotten in trouble with the reporting on the environmental aspect of it. You know, depending what paper you're reading, they're saying, while well, a lot of people are looking to invest in ESG stocks, they are not really performing all that great either. So what do you see happening? Is it time we eliminate the E or, you know, so where does this go?
1: i got a quick thought on that. I think that there's no way we're going to eliminate the E. That's here to stay. The, the, the backlash you're getting. Yeah, there's a backlash against so-called woke capitalism. Uh, there's also the bigger thing that you referenced, John, was uh, investigations into several fund managers about whether their ESG stuff was really ESG. Their, their funds that they were managing, particularly a, a, a German uh, uh, um, entry into, I think, I think it was Deutsche Bank, am I right, uh, um, Jason, they, it, they entered their offices, you know, in the middle of the night, took away documents, right, to see whether they were sort of fraudulently claiming ESG. There's nobody that's really saying that climate, you know, there's not a backlash to the climate change issue, nor is there a backlash to the climate change issue as it pertains to consumers, uh, whether that be automobile purchasers or other goods that are carried by railroads like you know, Procter & Gamble and Walmart products. So I, I think... You know, what we're seeing here is a, it, ESG, was it was everybody was claiming it. We may, have, we may codify what it means, but we still have, you know, railroad shares owned, I don't know, in the high double digit, you know, 40% of the shares are owned by ESG mandated funds like Vanguard, right, and like uh, TCI, which is the largest shareholder of CP and the, still, I think, the second largest CN. So, you know, I don't think the pressure from shareholders of the railroads on ESG will really abate in this. And more importantly, I don't think the opportunity for railroads to take advantage of the carbon issue there as a marketing tool, you know which is somewhere in the very near future, I don't think that's going to abate. If anything, what we may see here is a true standardization of what it means to be ESG, but I do not believe that we're going to remove the E. In fact, ESG is by far the biggest part of the three-letter thing. It's, it's the last one to be removed. Most people don't even know what the other two letters mean. Um, and as it pertains so far to railroad investing, um, they have had you know much. Those are smaller case letters behind the capital E.
2: So, uh, look, I, I I agree with Tony. When you when you look at ESG funds, if I go back ten years, the only people talking ESG were all in Europe, and it was a handful of investors. No one here in the U.S. was running an ESG fund, or at least no one that ever spoke to me. Um, so, if you fast forward now, the the, the highest um, growth and assets under management have all been to ESG funds so you know obviously when you have that much capital flowing in there's probably going to be people you know either skirting the rules of their own funds or sort of making mistakes in some of their investments so it's not really too shocking um, but but again this this is something that is real this is something that's going to stay with us for a while and, and where I'll differ a little bit from Tony I don't think it's on the come. I think it's here. You know, We had a, uh, a big um, Sons with Seidel not too long ago where we had a Fortune 500 shipper on and he was already saying it is a mandate from above uh, to reduce their carbon footprint. And one of the ways they were looking at is trying to move more towards interval, right? The easiest way that if you're looking at a top-down approach and you're a guy in the supply chain, they said, hey, listen, we wanna reduce our carbon footprint. You can just make a quick calculation on how much you're gonna save. By running from a truck to a to a train uh and you sort of just wipe your hands of it and keep going forward um the interesting thing i think going forward is going to be how they score esg companies that seems to be all over the map in my opinion um, and i think that's going to, going to get sort of, you know uh, narrowed down and, and and codified a little bit more uh, so people can make better judgments uh, on some of the ratings i think going forward ultimately the rails you know over the next you know five to ten years are gonna be pretty good ESG plays, right? You're gonna have a growth in intermodal business and you're gonna have a long-term secular decline in coal. So your mix of business is gonna look better on that E and the ESG parts for the
1: railroads. I I agree. And and, and I just wanna emphasize that that I further be I I do think it's here. Uh, I think tangible wins are uh, because of ESG that I'm literally I think they're contemplating a move to intermodal, among other things. The railroads can't handle additional intermodal. Right Bingo! It's well, what we
2: said before. Yeah,
1: but but it, it, back in the aughts, Unilever uh, was one of the first global companies to have an. I don't even know if it was called an ESG mandate back then. It was a carbon reduction mandate from Europe, and the North American operation increased their intermodal and was the first global unit within Unilever to hit their carbon goals. You know, which are probably less stringent back then. So you know, th- this has been going on. But, you know, now it's here to stay, as Jason said. I mean, I fully agree. And I just been on the come is that I think at 23, we'll be able to say, you know, there'll be a railroad CEO or a press release that'll say, you know, company X has shifted 10, you know, they'll have press releases behind it. I absolutely believe it's happening, um, you know, in conversation now. Just when I'm talking at NARS, for example, our sister organization, um, when, when I asked, um, couple of the railroad ceos or cmos they didn't have the tangible win in 2022 now that's probably too much to ask but but they will in 23 and 24 and 25 so I, I don't disagree with you jason at all it just was a phraseology issue
0: okay well we talked investing let's talk a little bit about technology um you picked up the wall street journal today you see where. Tesla makes headlines for having the most crashes for driver assistant features. Of course, in my take is because they have the most cars with the driver assistant features. However, as as we look into future, and obviously we're talking about automated trucks, automated trains, and you know, the technology that goes with them. As we see these headlines, obviously, we just want to sensationalize everything these days, and one crash is too many. I get that. But as this comes out. Do you think this hurts where trucking is going? I mean, they are pushing it. they are trying to get into certain cities. I believe I read last week in one of them that they were trying by the end of this year to have an automatic truck going from Arizona to California. I mean, how do you think this whole thing plays in as we keep putting incidents you know, that happen? Of course, it's going to, and it happens with drivers driving every day and texting, right? Is it the technology or is it the human factor? So how does all this play out?
2: so you know about uh, a week and a half ago i was actually driving uh, in an autonomous truck in the back seat um out in california uh and it's the second time i've ridden in one uh and you can see that there's definitely been some technology gains there uh this is the future uh but there's like anything else it's not just a straight hockey stick shot up um and these companies whether whether you're talking the largest uh, autonomous trucking company or the smallest are all rooting for each other because you can't have you know that big accident eventually you're going to have that but that's going to set everyone back a little bit so they are to say they're concerned uh about safety is a massive understatement right so they're doing everything they can because no one wants to be the first one to sort of get into that big accident if you will if you look at all the test runs that are being done now and they're being done driver out right now but in, in very selected lanes and, and controlled ways uh but it's but it's but it's in arizona it's in texas it's in california uh there's looks to come east towards to savannah and atlanta uh with some of these companies uh right now i think there's only one state on the east coast uh that is sort of holding up uh you know to really run up and down the entire east coast i think that comes a little bit later because not again you want good weather straight shot highway runs uh to start this stuff right now and i think in the beginning where you're going to see the ubiquitous use of autonomous trucks it's, it's going to be in those sort of big line hall lanes in the in the very good weather states, uh, and, and I think you're going to see, you know, driver, you know, actual physical drivers working with these guys to act as almost dredge on either side of these lanes.
1: So I have two a- anecdotes. I mean, first I would add that the states they're testing them in are areas where life is cheap, you know, like Nevada. You know that they, they could you know just run them. It, it, they're sort of testing dangerous equipment on public roads. Uh, which is gaining a bit of uh, notoriety these days. Second, uh, Elon Musk uh, said in 2017 that there would be 100,000 of his Class Eight trucks on the road by 2019, and that it would be suicide for railroads, which is just one of my favorite quotes of the last decade, because, of course, the railroads wouldn't be buying the trucks and putting them out there to hurt themselves. It would be homicide for railroads if it worked. And, of course, there are no Tesla Class A trucks out there. And just in the ra- latest issue of... Uh, the ATA's transport topics. Uh, There's an interview with the CEO of the American Trucking Association who said, yes, that they're coming, but essentially that they're probably gonna be best used for regional and that the long haul would still have truck drivers. He was addressing the issue of what are we gonna do about all the truck driver jobs lost, et cetera. And uh, he he basically reversed the thought of a lot of people out there. And being, I would expect, hopefully pretty close to the market for which he serves or to which he serves, uh, you know that would be interesting uh, you know this coming technology is you know incrementally making progress we way overstated it five years ago about the timing um it's going to happen and it's likely to happen in ways that are actually pro-rail or pro-intermodal uh, in many cases automation within terminals for example will come before we have real automation in the long haul uh, so it's something from a railroad and intermodal perspective that needs to be constantly watched that needs to be prodding the budgets of the technology budgets of the railroads themselves so that they cannot be complacent. but it is not a near-term worry for me it's I think something that may actually be advantageous for the whole supply chain including the rail portion.
0: okay well we're still on to technology it seems to be a hot subject here and always making headlines seems every week anymore is rail pulse. and you know I guess you can look at it in this two different ways but most of the feedback, I get, or the questions, and I just try to consolidate them, is are they reinventing the wheel, the 20 year old technology, and why is it so difficult for the railroads to you know, enact?
1: So can I answer that first, Jason? Because I spent a lot of time on Rail Pulse uh, and just spoke to several of the key members and we will be in Chicago with a bunch of others uh, in a couple of days. This is something I've been pushing for a while. Rail Pulse is a diplomatic achievement, not a technological one. The technology does exist. Uh, you know, has existed, uh, but the idea is you have multiple sources of information, and to, to get all these sources together, which are uh, often at tr- tactical odds: car owners versus rail operators versus shippers, etc. to to co- to contribute to a greater knowledge for the whole, to make the pie bigger, and then divvy out the slice is a major diplomatic achievement. Getting Union Pacific on board is the game changer for the game changer, in my opinion. Uh, They will probably slow onboarding in the future in order to get to to hit their, their business goals, but this is, I think now we can, you know, this was, that was the red letter date that we say this one. The technology may have existed, but never before. Maybe some shippers had this by going to five different sites. Can we control the information, you know, know the information of exactly where a rail car is, from a short line, a terminal operator, a warehouse, a class one to a class one across the spectrum. If you think about the complexity of the paper market, the many to many market, that's really important. In addition to quote Mike Miller of Genesee, Wyoming, it will provide a single source of truth for information on where the car is in terms of drayage, billing, there'll be no disputes anymore, they'll know. They'll, they'll also the condition of the car as they put more sensors on, whether the refrigerated car is working. All of this existed and we see this at FedEx, for example, which is something maybe we want to talk about as being in the news these days. But but FedEx has a very simple job, right? They don't interline with anybody, right? They stack their empties in a store. They're, they're just an envelope, right? Here, you have a complex, much more complex supply chain. And this will provide a single source of information truth that I think will be a game changer in terms of, uh, of, of visibility, of usability, and, and of, of eroding or reducing the friction that goes when you have things like demerge charges, so I, I truly think uh, this is that UP's decision um, will, you know, could be will be followed up by greater interest by all the other class ones. They will not be on board and soon because it's, you know, they've got business to do. You know, anytime you add a company the size of UP, you slow down all the work they were doing before UP was there. They they will add probably another short line holding company soon. Um, you know, they already have enough to make it a, a valid entity right now but at, at some point in a year this will be the the industry standard in my opinion
2: so I, I think the the best way to describe it you know by 2025 the railroads will have 2015 supply chain visibility capability
1: but but again the railroads- it's better than not having it
2: I, i'm there and, and, and tony's sure. right i mean it's, sure. it's- the,
1: the issue was was diplomatic was getting You know, a a rail car owner, a fleet owner and a manufacturer and a railroad all agree and multiple railroads to agree to contribute to try to make the entire supply chain better, even though it may disadvantage. For example, if you have greater visibility, you may need fewer cars. Now, if you are a major car leasing company, that might seem intuitively against what you actually want to see happen. But ultimately, if you have more rail shippers, you'll benefit. So they're taking short term pain. long-term gain and that is hard thing to convince people to do Uh, i would agree about 2015 technology but again i would argue that no other supply chain except maybe international steam shipping has as many different handlers as the rail system does
0: okay we're going to move this to the northeast and talk about csx has finally completed the transaction of the pan am what do you see as the big improvements coming will there be big improvements as both struggle at service at this point in time and what does the future of that network look like for csx
2: well we're what we're fifteen we're 15 days in so it's a little bit early to (laughs) to say it's working or it's not working and 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 i just got off the phone with the company actually um look everyone's hopeful um that uh that this combination is going to work for you know not only csx but i think for new england itself um you know we haven't had a a class one with with this type of penetration in the new england um and i don't think ever definitely not in my lifetime um but uh you know to me right now uh it's going to be interesting because you know you see you know states like massachusetts talking about how how the 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 waste coming out of there the waste shipments are going to be growing exponentially and so there's definitely opportunity for for rail to grab a, a bigger piece of uh, the transportation supply um, uh, that's being offered out there right now. And I think CSX and Pan Am are going to hope to get it. But to you know, say it's positive or negative right now, it's 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 way too early. And I don't think if you're going to say, hey, both service is an issue, I don't think it has to do specifically with the transaction. I think that's more of a rail service in general as is an issue. They
1: got wicked, wicked amount of waste there. They got wicked waste, yeah, in Massachusetts. Um, my my thing on the pan am is twofold one the big beneficia- beneficiaries benefits sorry will come after they spend capital so they're going to upgrade the, uh, the pan am lines to higher speeds create a much more fluid network um you know i could see skeptics arguing they can't don't have a fluid network themselves now but i think they will and part of the issue here is that pan am didn't have the capital to spend they were going to come in and provide you know money to upgrade the lines in maine for example uh, and that's going to be a big benefit. My my concern, and time will tell this, is they spent an awful lot of money. CSX did for what it appears to be a fairly modest return. You know, they're looking for for growth of one and a half percent out of that. You know, something like that. It's it was, you know, they certainly didn't overstate their growth plan. Whether we have arguments about the CPKC and whether. You know what are the synergies here? The the synergies listed in Pan Am, despite that big capital infusion, which I think is really exciting and obviously good for New England citizens and and businesses, they're not looking for big numbers now. Were they being very conservative, sort of the opposite of, of how Calgary was? That's possible. Um, you know uh, the late and and de- lamented uh, Mark Wallace was creator of the plan, so we can't ask him now. But it'll be really interesting to see whether in three or four years when we do this again before our meeting in wherever wonderful place, um, whether they've achieved numbers that are higher. uh, To really justify that expenditure, those numbers, I would hope, would be conservative. It's not a game changer for CSX, given the size of their network, but uh, I was very surprised by their expectations.
0: Okay, we're going to move this over to the talk a little bit about the STB. The what? uh, right. From what I understand, Tony, the next meetings are going to be hosted by Vince McMahon at a WWE cage match.
1: And as I all- versus foot. <laughs> you know, well, listen, you, you, you better get the CEO there or somebody might lose their mind two, two come in. One comes out. So and as we've seen,
0: these meetings have been anything but easy for the class ones. And you said a little bit earlier on, you think things are going to level off and ease up a little bit with the STB and the class ones. But in reality, you know, some shippers here have said the class ones haven't done anything to help themselves in front of the STB.
1: That's for sure.
0: And, you know, as long as the administration is in, as long as we have Marty and Primus and those other guys there, do you see much changes over the next couple of years as far as attitudes towards the class ones go as far as the STB is concerned?
1: I, I, I think that um, the STB had came in with these opinions before the the railroads gave them what they wanted on a plate. Uh, they thought railroads were monopolistic were dominated by Wall Street um, and were too, too, and, and were too focused on stock buybacks not not in their purview uh, in terms of stock buybacks. they should not talk about that Two, dominated by Wall Street and and, and uh, monopolistic is because the STB, is mandated to look at railroads in a vacuum and therefore they don't look at the supply chain. So for a monopolistic industry, uh, they have been losing share uh, over the past five years uh, after regaining a bunch of the first part of this, of this century, you know, in the rail renaissance. So how, how does a monopoly lose share to, to something that they don't even judge the highway, much less the waterway? It shows you the, the limits of this sort of singular rifle shot look at one piece of the supply chain and their attempts to look at this, the fact that they are uh, influenced by shareholder value of, um, issues, as if the shippers aren't influenced by those very same issues, you know, that Dow Chemical, Ford Motor, uh, you know, Amazon, Walmart don't care about their shareholder value issues is really crazy. Getting, getting taking from the theoretical to the practical, the SCB has only limited powers outside of a merger where it is king and emperor, and they would, they would like to expand their powers. I am not worried about future hearings aside from the theater and the embarrassment of it all. And true, the railroads have not helped themselves by doing things like issuing press releases, touting their share buybacks the day before a hearing, just like waving a red flag in front of a bull instead of saying, Hey, we have a balanced capital plan with, you know, enormous expenditures on safety. I mean, they just, they seemingly one hand is not paying attention to the other and nobody's reading the room, but I am not overly concerned about the STB go from here on out if, and this this should be in huge letters. If and when the railroads actually resolve their labor-led supply chain issues, their portion of the supply chain crisis, you know, that's what we're looking at. Even though it's a gr- bigger issue, as Jason said already, with with warehouses and and shippers and truckers having having supply issues. If railroads get their crews in the field, then we've seen the worst of what they can do. And I'm including reciprocal switching. If they don't, then you may get more powers at the STB. But right now, they, they follow, they, 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 they regulate coal, grain, and chemicals. Coal is going away or going lower, and the other two are mostly under contract. Um, what the STB would like to do is have more powers to look at more things. They want to look at demurrage. Well, if we get rail pulse, that issue will go away. So there are all the tools the railroads have to make to reduce this problem are in their arsenal and they better employ them fast
2: so uh a couple of things so number one tony hit the nail on the head they absolutely have not helped themselves uh, but again this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because under the obama administration when re-regulation talk was sort of at its peak you had railroads in their conference calls sort of touting all-time record you know core price increases thumping their chest while at the same time people are worried about re-regulation so look, they, they, they've made these mistakes in the past and 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 that's quite frankly on them um you know whether you know it's going to get any better for them i agree with tony 100 you know the railroads can help themselves and and getting some of this service improved and it'll get a little bit better but uh other than that a lot of this stuff is is just theater i mean you know we had somebody from the stb complaining that they didn't have uh, a railroad CEO at an operations hearing when the railroad put forward their, their chief operating officer, the second in charge, and the chief marketing officer, but that wasn't good enough, so he spent five minutes complaining about it, which was just In stupid. fact,
1: Jason, they were uh, basically told they didn't want the CEOs because they didn't want the same old story. They wanted to talk to the source.
2: And and and, and, and by the way, the CEO at the time was outgoing. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I would just, the only thing I would disagree with what Jason said, having to put my, uh, my partisan hat on is, you know, in, in the I don't think it was such a big thing in the Obama administration. The, the fight here against railroads and the STB was not particularly aggressive in the aughts, right? Among other things, railroads were gaining pricing power, having essentially been underwater with their pricing for so many years. But in, in the the switch over to this, the this sort of now consensus opinion in Washington that railroads are part of a, a monopolistic problem really began under the last administration. Ann Begeman was his anti-rail. Or anti railroad, I should say, as, as as Marty is right now, and I would argue that that's because uh, the way that PSR was implemented at yeah. CSX—that—that so that was is-
2: absolutely the, the Hunter's uh, PSR, um, you know, fast forward version—is yes. uh, the one that caused sort of the most consternation uh, there. But but I would say this right now, and, and as most people know. I'm a, I'm a raging independent politically and can't stand either side. Um, but you know, right now, you know, big corporations are in the crosshairs of the current administration. I don't care what you want to say; that's what it is right now. And you know, big businesses being looked at as as sort of the cause of some of these things. So the railroads are indeed big business. The railroads are duopolies, and that's the way they're being looked at. You know, I, I doubt the light is going to get shined on them in a positive view. Will it be better? once we get through some of these um, you know the, the, service the issue. issues I, I yes will they ever will this current STB as it's constituted now ever have what we say a, a favorable look towards the class no. ones I
1: highly doubt it but, but I would just say this you know the, the difference between railroad regulation again not putting a partisan hat on it versus say regulating you know what the Biden administration really went after with their executive order roughly a year ago they were looking at and I just love saying this phrase big meat They were looking at big tech and their impact on consumers, right? Here, railroads are having an issue of whether or not they're serving customers like Dow Chemical, you know, Archer Daniels Midland. This is a business-to-business dispute where, although it makes a great soundbite to talk about how how low the number of class ones is now compared to the past, there's not really a groundswell of popular support. Behind chemical shippers, right? So, the, so I think the railroads, if they get their act together, will escape whatever happens or could happen to some of these other industries that are in the crosshairs. Because this is the consumer is only indirectly impacted by what happens here. This is the fight. You know, a fight between Union Pacific and Dow Chemical does not uh, engender a lot of woke feelings.
0: Okay, so we're going to move on to the shipper. We are a shipper organization, and you know. I don't think there's any segment out there that hasn't been affected by supply chain issues. Yesterday I went out with a friend from a railroad and we got some burgers and shakes in Pittsburgh. And I went to order the almond tort shake. Guess what? They can't get to almond flavoring because of supply chain issues. Um, so down to the lowest level, your supply chain issues, and we all know that. And then you throw in, you know, the, the latest word that, you know, the latest headlines is inflation. So we have supply chain issues, we have shrinkflation, we have inflation, and now we have fuel that Pennsylvania, when I filled up yesterday, I regular was at $4.99 a gallon. Now we could all argue California's at 7 and Europe is above $8 and that's not the argument here. The argument is every time that money goes up, the price of transportation keeps increasing. So... How do you see this, you know, we think we're halfway through the supply chain crisis, maybe on the other side getting out of it, and then a few more wrenches keep getting thrown into it. So, big picture, you know, how's all this going to play out for the rest of the year? Well, look, I I, I think I want
2: to separate, you know, fuel prices and and the supply chain a a little bit, because I, I think they're two different things. I mean, yes... You could argue that, you know, some of the uh, the inventory and storage on diesel is, is helping driving up some of the prices, especially on a regional basis out east. But in, in terms of the shippers worry about that, there are two different things, right? So when you look at the shipper and how they're looking at fuel, it's it's going to be a pass through. And that ultimately is, is going to keep creating more inflation down the line, because at the end of the day, it's all of us here who are going to pay the price for diesel if it continues to go up because it permeates throughout the economy. Uh, in terms of the supply chain, look, I, I, I think things are going to get better. We, we talk about labor, that's been an issue. We talk, and, and that could get at least a little bit better on the rail side. It's gotten better on the trucking side uh, than where we were, let's say a year, year and a half ago. Um, I think if you look on the warehousing side, you know, warehousing space is at a massive premium, it still is. But there are showing some cracks amazon's leasing some stuff back because they got a little bit too much space now so that'll help ease some of the congestion um you know we had a 1.2 trillion trillion uh, dollar infrastructure bill you know thank god we got something i was just thrilled uh, you know it's been you know a decade overdue in my opinion um and, and there's money in there not a, not enough for for some physical assets but there's money there that wasn't there before so we're going to have some help coming out i think there's like 17 billion dollars going towards port projects. But these can be, you know, you're not gonna see any impacts here in 23. This is gonna be a multi-year impact thing down the road. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is what's gonna to happen to the supply chain on a permanent basis, right? What decisions are shippers and suppliers making now that's going to ultimately change the supply chain? Are people looking at their exposure to China with their tier one or tier two suppliers and looking to change that down the road? I I think the answer is probably yes. Are people going to finally give up uh, constantly going to the West coast ports and now, and and, and look for alternatives. You know, if if CP has their way, they're going to try to market Lazaro Cardenas. That's why they announced, Hey. We did you know, seven day service from Lazaro into Chicago. I think that oh, was yeah. one of the more interesting um, you know, announcements in the earning, last earnings season that we had. So I, I think those are the things to think about with the supply chain. I, I think we're through sort of the worst of all the problems that we've had. Uh, but in terms of uh, shippers paying more, uh, I think in the near term, that's absolutely gonna be the case.
1: So I agree with just about everything right there. Uh, this, first of all, some of the, it, the supply chain issues are contributor to inflation, but those are separate issues. So like oil price, et cetera, is not related to this. It's related to, you know, a variety of issues. There's not a lot of additional drilling going on in the Permian Basin. Is that because of regulation? No, it's because of Wall Street. And the fact is, in the last boom, there was no free cash flow generated out of the Permian because they spent every penny on further drilling. So, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Continental and, and whatnot as they try to go private and maybe go back to trying to be valued on on drilling rather than on actual free cash flow. But the the point is that's a separate issue. I agree that we'll get gradual improvement in supply chain um, efforts through railroad hiring and training, et cetera, is one of, one of the components. Um, I don't see, um, you know, I, 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 one of the issues also is that shippers have have adopted have adapted. And they are, for example, I don't think we'll have a huge peak. There's pre-buying. They're buying now throughout the year. And this goes to one of the changes I think we may see out of this. I don't expect a lot of reshoring. I do see some nearshoring. Mexico is always a growth opportunity, although I am a, not at all bullish on Lazaro to Chicago business. That ship would have to bypass L.A., and I don't see that happening. But, but that, that's, you know, uh, Keith Creel... Firmly believes in it, and he's done, he's been, I've got a pretty good track record. But one trend I do see that could come out of this that Jason sort of alluded to is uh, what they call just in case. You know, the adding um, uh, um, more resiliency, more buffer stock into the supply chain, adding more inventory, assuming that we can cap inflation increases because inventory is an inflator, right? But the idea is running a very lean operation carries risk. And we've seen that risk in chips for automobiles being the most blatant example. If you add inventory in back into the system, and, and this goes, this is all the way to the railroads. You need to have buffer crews, extra crews available. They need to have, you know, they can't run a, 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 a PSR system that expects every day to be sunny, right? And so if you add stock back into the entire system, I think ultimately that's good for rail. If you, if you can carry more inventory, then you're not running at a speed and a precision level that only trucks can can approach where intermodal truck and rail cooperation can approach at a a bigger level. So I expect that auto manufacturers in the future will have more chips on hand. I know rails don't really carry those, but I think that every piece out there, uh, you know, there'll be more of them in stock rather than waiting for it to be delivered just when the ultimate consumer, whether it's industrial or an actual person wants it. And I think that may be one thing we get out of this. Uh, The recent results of Target, when they had too much inventory and they got hammered, maybe that goes against what I'm saying. Uh, Big interest rate increases, add the cost inventory, maybe that goes against it. But one lesson from all this is to not be dependent on a single source and to have more of it there so that you're better prepared for that rainy day. That's what railroads can help with.
2: Yeah, as Tony mentioned, if, if you look at last year, you know, you know, people weren't, weren't getting their, you know, Halloween shipments through on time. And so if you get your Halloween shipments delivered November 1st, you know, th- their value is down about 75% of the entire shipment, right? So so that's why you saw people trying to order more, but then they found out, uh-oh, the supply chain's not as congested. Now we're getting the ships in, you know, a month and a half, two months earlier than we thought. I have no place to put this stuff. And, and, and next thing you know, your demerge charges are up, or you find a warehouse, but you gotta pay three times, what you which you did before. And now you're now the carrying cost of your inventory is increasing uh, even more. And I think that's the situation. But I think buffer stock um, going forward is is going to be the case for sure, because you, you don't want to be caught short like we were last year. And, and I think also going forward, I think the rails are going to take a different approach, you know, during if we have a downturn, if you know, I, I personally, I think we're in a recession right now. It's just not announced yet. Uh, but if we get a long recession, we go down and rails are going to furlough like they always do. I think they're going to find ways to keep people around more than they did in the past because they're too worried to cut to the bone like they did last time.
1: Yes, I agree with that fully. J.J. Roe was saying that in his last days that we really need to have, you know, uh, greater redundancy of, of rail assets, whether those are experienced workers or those are actual cars and locomotives, et cetera. And I think that's just gonna be true, true throughout everywhere. I mean, I think the idea of driving just the lowest operating ratio you know, has been proven to be politically and market share unstable as in terms of you know, going, business going forward. And the railroads but everybody will do this. this is part of what i'm talking about the just in case i think automobile manufacturers are going to add more inventory and in stock everybody has a labor shortage and everybody's going to have to think about how they handle this recession if it's here if it comes and how they lay people off etc
0: okay so as we head to wrap up this podcast again i, w- I want to end it on a more positive tone so tony we're sitting out on the beach you're sitting in your chair your radio's turned off. You don't get any signal and you're reading your book. What's the number one summer read you're going to recommend?
1: Wow. Uh, I wish you'd give me some time to think about that. Uh, I'm rereading the last convertible right now, but I also have about seven history books and, uh, uh, a great book that I have right under here that I'm reading called the broken game. It's about the 2020 LA Dodgers. And I'm reading it as slowly as I can because I like to, you know, it's, it's so much fun. Uh, and it's about how the, the, uh, uh, my baseball team figured out how the base, the, the game was changing and profited by it.
0: Okay. So Jason, as we see Tony laying on the beach, enjoying his book. <laughs> Wait, and I have to watch Tony laying on the, on the beach. beach. Wait so a minute now. Sipping <laughs> on his beer and we're walking by in our 80s style. I, I'm in an exclusive
1: band. club and Jason would not be allowed to in my. I and clearly, and with this face. The of the fence.
0: So we're walking by 80s style with our boom box. What are we blasting as our number one summer song?
2: Ooh, number one, summer song. Um, you know what? I, I think I'm going to, with the markets is bad. I think uh, the markets need a little bit of a kickstart. So I'm going to say Motley Crue kickstart my heart.
1: So I would say get back by the Beatles because I just watched the uh, Peter Jackson documentary of the same name and saw McCartney at Fenway park. So, uh, uh, you know, Jojo was a man who thought he was a woman. That's what you're going to hear in my, my box.
0: Well, Again, I appreciate both your times. We're going to see you again for the Tony and Jason show at the Nears Conference, September 20th to 22nd. So do you want to make one prediction that we could hold you accountable to when we see you again?
2: Uh, I will be buying
1: good beer for everyone in Pittsburgh. That's a good one, Jason. Tony? Um, The Dodgers will be in first place heading for the playoffs, and I will be drinking some of Jason's good beer in Pittsburgh.
0: Well, again, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your summer and we will see you in September.